Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. As far as I know, possibly hatched. Right, yeah. exactly. I was born. You're a, an LA, an LA kid. Did you grow up in 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 music? I'm a Valley girl, an actual, authentic, genuine Valley girl, yeah. and I did not grow up in music. My father was actually my father was a musician and not a professional musician, but had an incredible passion for music. So, so I grew what up. What did he do? Did he play? He played piano, school? and like I sang when I was three at my cousin's bar mitzvah. Was like my singing debut, or maybe I was five. Do you remember it? No. I don't remember much about much, but no. But I remember singing with my father and him teaching me like all the old classics, and that's why I have a big love for musical theater and classic songs and Rodgers and Hammerstein and Hart and Gershwin. and. So were you doing theater all... That was, that was the focus when you were No, in it was just the focus of the songs that I knew were the American classic pop. Mm-hmm. What do you... It's called the... Yeah, the, the songbook. Yeah, the Great American Songbook. Thank you, the Great you American Songbook, yeah. and um, musicals because that was just his life. So I grew up singing and loving musicals, but um, I also grew up, you know, with Elton John and Joni Mitchell and the Beatles, and that was kind of the stuff I gravitated more towards. Did was that something that he did? He have an opinion towards, you know, what popular music was versus? I mean, I, I just don't know what that was like because I I know. 
I do know what that was like because I was gonna say my my parents when they listened to when the music I listened to and it was you know Nirvana and Pearl Jam and whatnot they're like this is terrible. I didn't really like buy music then. I mean, he bought like Elton John and like Billy Joel and the Beatles and Harry Nilsson. And I remember hearing that. But I guess maybe, I don't know, was, I, I didn't really play the songs for him at that point. It was, he was, you know, so passionate about teaching me, you know, classic songs and Gershwin and Hammerstein. And also, I mean, I should probably say that. My parents got divorced when I was 11, so like he wasn't, I guess, around as much when I was a teenager. So that's probably a big part of that, why that didn't happen. So you go through musical theater stuff. You're probably doing all these plays when you were younger too, right? I did plays, and then I did musical theater for a little bit in L.A. like when I... When you're in high school. Yeah. But high school, we didn't do a musical my year, which was like really, really sad. But... um I did musicals, some a few. I tried to do LA theater. I did a little bit of LA theater, and then I moved to New York, trying to do theater. Okay, so you go to New York, and how old are you when you're in New York? Like in my twenties. So you get to live in the greatest city in the world. Oh, it's when you're in your twenties. It's still like when I think back on, I had like no money, and. I, I mean, I was living in the, like this tiny walk up with a shower in the kitchen in Little Italy, and for six years, and I would, but and I didn't have a whole lot to do because I wasn't, I didn't have a songwriting career yet, and it's still some of the happiest years of my life. What was your career though? What were you doing? Um, how do you how do you pay for life in New York? <laughs> Daddy helped a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I don't even know how I did it. I mean, my first professional jobs, and I don't even really like to admit this because. It was I. I did like four editions of songs for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and I'm a little bit what? embarrassed about. I know it's very bizarre. I'm a little embarrassed about it because I'm such an animal activist now. But at the time, I just was like, oh my god! Like I just got hired to write these songs. Now I would. They came back to me years later, and I was like, there's no amount of money that you could pay me that I would do it. But I mean, I was in my twenties, and it was like this incredible opportunity, and. I also have a very strange... Wait, so they just find you out of nowhere and they're no, like, hey, lady, you want to no, write songs? Th- this is what happened. My career okay. has been very strange because when I was in New York and I was singing, trying to act, couldn't get arrested. I was trying to audition for musical theater, couldn't get arrested, was in a singing group, you know, did... Ca- I was like in the cabaret theater world and I got to know um, like... Adam Gettle, who's a Tony Award winning um, composer, and Stephen Schwartz was a good friend of mine. Wow. I knew Liza Minnelli. Just th- I knew Stephen Sondheim through just like that was the crowd that I knew. Did you guys hang out, like have dinner? Yeah, with Liza. Together? Yeah, with, with, yeah, Adam. I dated him for a while. And I mean, um, and I, these are the people I wrote songs with. I wrote songs with Stephen Schwartz. I, wrote, I used to write a lyric on a page. Like when I first started writing songs, I would write a lyric and just like hand it to them. And that's the way that it's done in that world. And then they would like, and I wrote some great songs. Like John Bacchino is an amazing composer. Yeah, they would do all, you know, and I always heard melodies, but at that point I was like, I did, that wasn't the way that it was done. I mean, Adam and I, both songs that we wrote, um, Audrey McDonald recorded and, you know, Stephen performed, you know, we performed those songs and Liza hired me to write a song. I wrote, this is insane. I was hired to write Michael Feinstein and I wrote songs for um, Bruce Valanche. 
Harvey Firestein. I have the weirdest career ever. So you're, this is I've you're gone writing, backwards. I've gone upside down. Like were this you, is, were you? This is so crazy. Were you writing there? So you're writing the music for these theatrical lyrics. Star, the lyrics for these theatrical stars solo careers. They were like. Uh, Bruce Valanche did a movie, so Michael Feinstein and I. You, uh, all right, most of most of our listeners have have no idea who these people are. I, I, know, I know who they. they I but know. Give, give like give like oh yeah, they were in this show kind of thing. No, but well, I mean, Bruce Valanche, you know, wrote has been writing the Oscars like the joke for the, he's a. How do you explain Bruce Valanche? That's it's fine. Like, that works. I know they won't know who he is. Harvey oh. Firestein, you Firestein. know, was a big Broadway playwright he's and Pumbaa. star, and Torch on trilogy. <laughs> Um, people know, I think, who Liza is. I mean, Stephen Schwartz is like Stephen Schwartz maybe the most, he's probably the, one of the richest songwriters in history. Yeah, I know. I mean, Wicked. these were like the people that I knew. And um, Stephen was going through a dry spell, if you can imagine. This was like before, this was before Wicked. Wow. Um, and he'd written Pippin and Godspin and all that when he was really young. But though, But I always wanted to write pop, and pop is my passion. But those were the people that I met through trying to do theater and, and the vocal group that I was in. Yeah, so I was try- singing, acting, um, and these are the people that I met, but I wanted, I always wanted to write pop songs. Like, pop was always the thing I was most passionate about. I just had no idea how to, who to, you know, I didn't know anybody. And um, Were you making a living at writing at that point. Well, my overhead, my total monthly overhead was about $500 a month. Living in New York? My apartment was 300 and then they raised it to 400 I had no utilities, no cell phone, no car. So, so you were in a closet in the middle of like... I, I loved <laughs> like You were it. living in the smallest I was living, room in you know, a 91 Grand Street between Mott and Mulberry. Yeah. It had a shower in the kitchen five floor walk up and I loved it. It was insane. Like, because I, I came from the valley. Wash my armpits. Oh my God. I, <laughs> I loved it. I would, wa- I mean, this is before no Lita and before it was all like, this was yeah. like in the nineties. So I would walk, you know, every day I'd be walking to Soho or these village or I would just, I love it. I had a boyfriend, a serious boyfriend there. And I just, I absolutely loved those years in New York, but I don't know how I mean, cause I did the circus and then I would get hired sometimes to do special material and um and I would still sing a little bit and daddy. Yeah. I'd be like, Dad, what do you need, kid? And envelopes of cash would arrive. Perfect. And I just got by, but I had no, I was known as like I was the brokest. We've talked about this in other things in other episodes where somehow when you're the brokest, there's always still dinner and drinks and and parties and you know you're out till three in the morning and when you have zero money you still somehow manage to find you just get by yeah you just get by or like you eat before you go to dinner you know you make your spaghetti like my thing was like noodles and ragu you know spaghetti sauce and then you're like oh yeah i already ate so then you can just kind of you know and i had generous friends or I mean, Adam Gettle, I used to, he used to hire me to like, he used to have photo shoots or at his loft and he would like hire me to go sit in his loft where I would like work on lyrics and people could have like stolen his piano. Yeah. I would have noticed. Yeah. So how do you go from writing lyrics with that kind of music to starting to pursue the songwriting world? I mean, I, I saw the Audrey McDonald 
credit as sort of the first thing that shows up on on oh, you know Wikipedia, which I thought I, I thought was interesting, and that comes in. This is like nineteen ninety eight. So, uh, how do you get a song to her? And are you like the only writer on that? I mean, oh, I forgot to mention something, and I got a publishing deal from Rogers and Hammerstein. Wow. During that period, for very little money, I forgot because I just remember that actually. And as I was trying to be an actress and a singer, and slam, 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 never could get a break. I had like five songs, and so Adam, my friend, was like, "I'll get you, an, you know, I can get you an interview there." But and the lady's like, "I'll meet you, but we don't really, you know, sign songwriters." And then she said, "I want to sign you." So it was like this tiny deal, and I never got any cuts from it. But they. That was enough money. That was a lot of money if you think about what my overhead was. That's incredible. It's like 15 grand or something. I mean, that's like getting signed to Lennon and McCartney. It was amazing. And they wanted to, at that point, I thought my songs were pop. When I listen back to them now, I mean, they weren't pop at all. Were they super theatrical? They were super like art songy. What do you mean by that? Yeah, like way too, I guess theatrical is a good way to put it. Did you want to be the artist? No. When did you know that? Because here you are singing and then you're also writing, but yet you don't want to release your own music? At that point in my life, I wanted to like be in musical theater. I wanted to be a performer, but I never wanted to be a recording artist. You just happened to be good at writing lyrics on the side. Yeah, and then I just started writing lyrics and um, I was looking for songs like to perform for myself, like funny songs and stuff like that. Like as a, but as a performer, like cabaret more than wanting to get a record deal. Sure. I never was trying to get a record deal. And um but all but it's important to say that all this time my passion is was always, you know, Joni Mitchell and Lauren Nero and the Beatles and just pop music. Sure. Then I then it was like so much I missed so much because I was listening to a lot of theater for for a long time. So um and at that point, and I'm not gonna name names, but there was a pretty big songwriting community in New York City. But mm. I could not get a co-write. I could not get arrested. I tried so hard, like for years, you know, before I moved back here in 1997. So towards like 94, 95, 96 with some of these people. And I, I could not get a chance. Nobody would write with me. Finally, there's a girl named Tanya Lea who, you know, was a very, very talented country writer. And um, we wrote a few songs, which is, part of like the story of how it happened. Did you feel discriminated against? Was there no. like a, a, a misogyny situation? No. Like why, did, why did they... I think it was more like, which I think is so funny because that's why I think my career is so strange. Um, at that, and, and it's only really recently that I've opened up about the way that I started because for so many years they'd be like, you're too theatrical. She's a theatrical writer. She's a cabaret writer. So I wasn't thought of as a pop writer, so they were like, she's not a pop writer. So I think it's kind of funny that like, if you think about the hits that I've had in the last few years, it's, you kind of think about that people would start with the pop and end up more in the other world. It's how it usually goes. And then the writing shows and stuff, but it's gone the complete... The exact opposite. Yeah, the exact opposite. And I hope someday to write a musical because I feel like I have that ability, but I just, nobody, they just didn't think of me that way. And they, when they heard the songs that I had, they said these songs are theatrical and she's not a pop writer. And Did you ever train to do music? No, nothing, zero. So it was all just, I'm a fan of this and learning from the actual albums. And- learning from just doing and not even yeah. realizing that I, I don't know, I just wrote lyrics and then, you know, and I would be very aggressive with, you know, 
this guy, John Bacchino, who's an incredible composer, and with Adam and Stephen Schwartz, I mean, I would be like, here's a here's yeah. a cassette, you know, or here's a lyric, like, check out my lyric, like, can we write together? With, but those were the only people that I knew, and like I said, the pop people, and there was a big pop community there. I couldn't, I couldn't get a chance. And, um, but I bring up Tanya because that's part of my story. I just... You know, I'm not. She's in. She was in Nashville, or she no? Was she in, was in. She was in New York, but she used to go to Nashville music. a lot. Yeah, yeah. she's a still incredible writer. And I bet I saw her at. They used to do the songwriting circle. I think they still do at the. Um, it's a famous, famous club on Bleecker. And I saw her, and I just had this strong. I've had like some psychic things in my life. I saw her, and I'm like, I have to write with her. And I literally like stalked her. And um, we wrote some songs together and I had a similar experience of like, I want to write pop songs. I want to move back to LA and write pop songs. I don't know anybody. I don't know what to do. And interestingly enough, at the time I was at BMI, I I switched to ASCAP when I moved here and ASCAP paid performances for the circus, but BMI didn't. So I was going to BMI. I mean, I don't know if this is relevant, but um, asking, you know, can you help? you know, can you match it? And one day I got like a check. It was $12,000 check. And at that point in my life, it might as well have been yeah. 1.2 million. Yeah. And then I literally was laying in my little bed with my no closet in little Italy. And I heard, and I was like, should I move to LA? I don't know anybody. And I heard a voice that a voice literally said to me, move to LA, just like that. And I sat up in my bed and I said, okay. And then I got the $12,000 check. There's your musical. And I know, $12,000 check. <laughs> you just like that epiphany of just like, all right, yeah. I'm on a journey. Let's yeah. go. And I, I just did it. You know, it was How like, soon after that did you go to LA? Pretty quickly. Like and within I, a month. Well, I just thing. did a big post on Facebook because it was, it was 20 years ago on June 11th. Oh, it was yeah, 20 years. That. Yeah. And I mean, and I had. We moved within a year of each other. That's so funny. There you go. Well, I had. You know, I had made some trips to L.A. and Marsha Malamut was a big writer at the time. She had given me a shot. I had written a couple songs with people, but I really didn't know anybody here. I had no idea how I was going to break in. And I, it's important to say, I think a lot of the top liners now that break in, a lot of them have really great voices. And it's a big plus. I, I can sing. I have a decent voice, but I never had that voice. So it was always harder. But uh, of, our, of our guests that tend to be that side of songwriting... By the way, Desmond uh, made me. Desmond Child made me say that I can't say top liner anymore. So I shook on it, and I'm going to be a man of my word. So that side of songwriting, we had you know Evan, who's not you know an A-list singer. We have Jay Cash, not an A-list True. singer. You know, you look at the best writers in the world, and so many of them aren't A-list singers. They're just really good writers. Those are totally different jobs. You're right, and I think. Sometimes you have to be a better writer if you're not, because I think there are some people that get in the door because they have incredible voices and it's a plus. Yeah, that's not to say they're they're not incredible writers as well. But um, did you find you needed to write with somebody who could translate it later? In when I first started, you know, we used to hire demo singers. Right. Um, but I moved back to LA with nothing. I mean, I had that twelve thousand. It was enough to get a car and an apartment. And in as soon as I moved back, I, there was like a songwriting magazine, and I saw this um, entry for this Unisong Music Bridges Song Contest. And I said, in on a cassette, and it was a deadline, one song, this song called The Love We Never Made with Tanya Leah. 
the song we'd written in New York. And I sent it in thinking nothing of it. And then Alan Roy Scott, who's still a friend of mine, called me and said, not only did we win Best Country Song, but I won the whole contest. Wow. And it was a very big contest because the prize was going to Ireland for a songwriting week with like major songwriters, Irish and ones from LA and, and Nashville and like people like Rodney Crowell. And... um writing for a week and then doing it like a concert in Dublin. And that really is that I met, I mean, the Rowanna Gillespie, she ended up signing me to Universal. People were like, and I didn't even know at that point that I could like, the way that we write songs now, I'd never done it. And I was like from room to room to room and I could just do it. Like, you know. So this is the LA life. This is, you know, you had already released your you're kind of done writing music for Audrey McDonald at that point, right? And yes. now the goal is like, well, what do we do with these future songs, right? You're at this point, you're like, okay, you're walking to a room. Who are you writing for? I guess is my question. Because before you had like, I need to write lyrics, knowing how Stephen Schwartz li- writes musicals. I need to write lyrics that he might respond to. You know. You move out here. Who's your audience? Well, first of all, it's important to say that I discovered around this time that the melodies I was hearing with the lyrics were good. So that's when I started doing melody and lyric, which I'm proud to say Topliner. I happen to like the expression Topliner. So, sorry. All right, then I'll shake hands and we'll always call it a Topliner. <laughs> I like <laughs> it. just a fair weather. <laughs> I like Topliner. No, I think, um, that, that, look, there's something very specific about it um, and very clear that's why I like these that, lyrics. Right. Well, what's interesting is because of this um, camp and the people that I was doing a lot of R and B music. I say R and B because it really was R and B at the time, and um, that was my first like co-writes and were in were in R and B. And I even had some this guy who I don't remember his name say, "I want to manage you and take me to a meeting with at Big John's office." This was still I think nineteen maybe maybe 1998, who said, I want to sign you right now. And I didn't. And I always sort of wonder what would have happened and slightly regret that decision. Um, but it was because I was being loyal to this woman, Rowanna Gillespie, at Polygram at the time, and I felt like she'd helped me since the camp. And so I'm very loyal. This is a Are you loyal to a fault? Maybe, but it's just who I am. I'll, I'll never change that. Yeah. So... I'll always remember that moment. And um, so my first, I wouldn't say cuts, because at that point we had cuts, but they didn't come out. Um, actually, I had a single on Monica. That was probably one of my first big things, but then it didn't go. Right. But my first things were like all like in the R&B world. Wow. And it was a- That's b- way opposite. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but that was always, I've, in my heart, I always was like a pop girl. I just, I've always gone where the opportunities are. Do you think that's because you were raised in LA versus New York? That had you been raised in New York, you would naturally be a theater girl. And then. I don't know. I just know that I've always been obsessed. You know, I don't, it's just what I feel like I do or I love or. And it's also where the opportunities are. Like, I also realize that cabaret pays nothing and um, pop music. You can actually make a living. But it's also, it's not even that. It's following my heart and just doing... Well, there's also money at that time in the music business where they can sign, they can take a risk, they can sign a new writer who has no cuts and give them 
kind of significant money. I mean, probably more than the $12,000 you got. That I missed all that. I missed the years of where I just missed it, where, you know, you were on a Backstreet Boys record and made millions from uh, the sales of the album tracks. I never had like a huge publishing deal. When I got my publishing deal, I did really didn't have cuts. It was not a lot of money and I had to live on it. And I had a release commitment. So the first check I got, which was not that much, had to last me for three years. I mean, I still had no money and was in terrible debt. And then I had to, thought, okay, so I can either live off credit cards and go into debt or um, go get like a waitress job or something. And I just decided to let go into debt. That's my... <laughs> my my personal favorite quote that I ever had was when I was foreclosing on my house or they were foreclosing on my house and I was saying like uh, uh, I'd rather live uh, I'd rather sell my condo to live my dream than to sell my dream to live in my condo wow I you love know? that and, and there was just that moment of uh, if they're gonna take it they're gonna kick me out that's fine but like what else am I gonna do I mean I literally have zero training in anything other than music at that time you know Oh, I it's say at that good, time like I now have training, but I don't. I have no. <laughs> I can't. Then. I literally don't know how to do anything else. It's like so, yeah. so you have this deal. Um, it's through Universal. So it was Polygram at the time, and then it was it became Universal. That yeah. was my first deal that lasted a long time. But the big hit, the first real big hit, is the Nick Lachey one, right? No, or is there one before the that? The first big hit was Incomplete by the Backstreet. Oh, Boys. that's before Nick Lachey. Yes, oh, and okay. and so this was. Like so you didn't seven just miss years. Them. Oh, I guess that's the tail end of them selling. Right, because I wasn't, I did get a, like a couple big cuts. I had like an Anastasia cut and like Clay Aiken. I had some big cuts where records were selling like five million, but I missed the 30 millions and yeah, the 20 yeah, yeah. millions. I missed that. And then I didn't have singles. I used to call myself the hitless wonder yeah. because I was getting a nice amount of cuts then, but I couldn't get a single. And the incomplete was that like it was an accidental single um, yeah. because. I had written it with Dan Muckala and Jess Cates, and we were all kind of unknown. And Teresa Labarra Whites is amazing because she'll always let the producer produce a song. So Dan produced a song, and the label wanted like a known entity. They wanted Max or Diane Warren or somebody to have the single. And apparently, it got leaked. This is I hope this is true because this is what I was told to radio, and it just sort of exploded on its own and just became the single of its own accord. Amazing. And and that was the first one, and that was life changing for me. Yeah. And it's I still love that song. I have to say some of our songs we cringe now, but that one is still like incomplete. We I were, still get we like were a playing thrill. it so loud in our house yesterday cuz oh I was playing and, and I hear my wife and you know uh, uh, the next room over singing along being like, "Wait, wait, why are you listening to that?" I was like, <laughs> "Lindy wrote that." She was, "No way." It's, it's yeah, incredible. I'm still very very proud of that song. The big and I and Jess Cates, I was writing partners. Jess Cates was my writing partner for like ten years. Just the two of you? Um, with we were sort of a team. Wow. Um, and what? then we met Eman, and that was a big, big chapter. Um, so what? What are you know? That's you meet Jess when you first move out here. No, um, it was a um, so bad. I think it was about. Maybe it was 2000 or something. Uh-huh. This was like, been doing the R&B stuff and then I met Jess and we just really, through Daryl Brown, who's, I love and is amazing. Um, and we just clicked and then, you know, this is my thing. I just started saying, okay, this is where we're going today. This is where we're going tomorrow. Yeah. I just set up all of our sessions and we had- So all had those few- cuts are basically you two together. Us two together. Well, incomplete. And then, with, then we started working with E-Man. We met E-Man. 
Um, and I remember meeting Eman and Eman and I had this weird like, oh, like I know you or something or I meant to ride with you. And yeah, because um, you're, you know, that's obviously before you're about to have some crazy runs with that guy. So oh yeah, but I discovered him and he'll. I've said this a million times. I discovered Eman and then Teresa said. Um, I want you and just to work with Nick Lachey. Who do you want to bring in? And I was like, I want to give this guy Eman a shot. And Where did that, you, how did you hear his music that you were like, ah, oh, I'm gonna go? I hadn't heard his music, and at this point, I was just really open. I still, I've, I'll always be open to like trying people. And um, uh, we had been introduced. There was another writer who um, we'd written with. Um, who know who said do you want to work, work with this guy Eman like what producer and I'm like yeah and then when I worked with them we just completely completely clicked yeah and um, that's that's like 2006 or so right 2005 it might have been like around 2005 I know he said it was just been like 11 or 12 years so yeah it was around that time it was after incomplete so yeah ab- this is after because after you have a Backstreet Boys single kind of still. In their primish years, you're still like I can imagine you could get in get any producer, not, right? Not yet. No, it wasn't because it, I think it wasn't the same as it is now, where everybody knows who wrote it and everybody, or what. I don't know why, but it still it wasn't like the doors were flying open. It was an incredible moment for me, and it definitely changed my life. But it just wasn't that moment yet. Right. Um, and then we wrote what's left to me with with Eman. So, and it's so funny how I've gone through different career things of like, well, this is what she writes. Like at that point, it was like she writes big boy band ballads, which I thought was so funny because I knew that I'd come from everything else that I'd come from. But this has happened many times in my career. And now I think finally people are confused and like, I guess she just writes like writes a songs. lot of different stuff. Yeah, writes songs. You go from theater to R&B to huge big but I was a closet no. theater writer because I really had to downplay that for a long time. Right. So I finally came out as a cabaret theater. It's really funny. Uh, being my start. Between Nick Lachey and Skyscraper, there's like a lot of cuts that happen. But the first time I I wasn't in the music industry or wasn't in the pop side of the music industry. I was in a band during all the mid all the 2000s. And right when I start getting into songwriting, Skyscraper happens. But is, I don't know if there's anything else I should talk about before we get to Skyscraper. But. I mean, there were singles. There was, um, I mean, there was, I started working with Toby Gad, who became a very big, and still is a, a big co-writer of mine. And um, he, I remember again, like begging him, Pete Ganbarg introduced us at, a ASCAP, at the ASCAP Awards. It's like, you should write with Toby. And Toby's like, here's my card. And I like stalked him. And came to New York, and the first song we wrote, Selena cut, and then Jordan Sparks cut the second song, and that, um, and so I had, and I had like another single on Demi called Here We Go Again. I mean, there were, that might have been after. No, it was before. before. It was before. So there was some, some singles. There was a Brie Larson single, which is so crazy. She ended up being this Oscar-winning actress. Um, And a lot of cuts. A lot more. There was another Backstreet single, Inconsolable, which is embarrassing. I know, incomplete, inconsolable. It was an accident. It was never supposed to be Backstreet Boys. But I had like nine songs on that record. So there was a point with E-Man. This was before Evan, the Evan E-Man era. This was with Jess Gates, where, you know, we had a lot of stuff on Backstreet Boys. We had, you know, a lot of American Idol stuff. When you were saying the 10 years 
with one co-writer, was it a sort of a divorce at the end of it, or no. was it just sort of like you know what I'm gonna just I'm writing I met Toby I'm gonna write with Toby I met E Man I'm gonna write with E Man yeah this is sort been, of a natural even uh, yeah there, Derek Bramble was even and 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 um, Damon Sharp were actually even before Jess as I'm thinking I and no it was it was always a natural thing like. Um, I mean, I had my first Anastasia and Faith Hill was with Derek, and then with Damon we had Monica, and we had some big cuts. But no, it really was just. I think he moved back to Nashville, and you know, we're still great friends. There was never a falling out for me. Moving in and out of new groups of people, it's just been just sort of like then you know you, you get a little tapped out, or sometimes yeah. you've been working with each other for so long, and then something feels fresh. Um, I've always liked. That's why I also travel a great deal writing because I like to mix it up and yeah. I like new people and new energy I always have. So no, um, I think uh, Jess moved back to Nashville. He had kids and just decided that was a better place for him to live and he was very into worship music and different kinds of things. And I also think that was an issue too because you know I'm kind of a dirty girl. So I wanted to get <laughs> into some other stuff. That's really true. Oh, I know, but it's true. <laughs> people say I have studio Tourette's, I can be pretty bad. And... Um, that's awesome. I'm trying to think if that's maybe when Eman and I started working with Evan. I think that was the well, next big thing. But that's after Skyscraper, isn't it? Okay, Skyscraper. So Skyscraper song, was the a reason Toby. why I bring up that song is because to me, I think that's that's you know top ten to twenty songs that that people still kind of reference in meetings where they're like, "Well, we need something like Skyscraper. We need that moment," and that thing. To me, it, you know, wasn't uh, it's not your biggest song at, on radio or anything like that. But that song seems to be maybe the most identifiable by name of anything. Maybe you know, as big as any song that, of anyone we've talked to. It feels like it has that kind of presence. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that song's become like a little bit iconic, and it's also important of like all the things that I've seen where people were like, this song saved my life or I didn't throw up today because of this song or I didn't harm myself because of this song, which is the most important reason to write songs. But I think but why, it took why a did minute for that. that song? Okay, I, and this goes back to Toby Gadd. I met Toby Gadd in New York and our first two songs got cut. So then he started to give me shots at things and he had me flown out to work with Curly, an artist named Curly. So we wrote Skyscraper for Curly and... um the real truth of it is that I had the word skyscraper in my head as an interesting, and this almost never has happened to me because I'm a very much get my titles in the room. I walked in there and said, I have an idea to write a song called Skyscraper. And Toby said, I don't like the title. It doesn't sing. And Curly mm -hmm. was drawing pictures and thinking about her childhood. And, and then it just got very emotional. He just started playing that thing in the piano and it just kind of poured out. The song just happened. And I mean, when I think about it, yeah, it's based on things that I've been through. It's based on things that Curly's been through. Toby's been through, like, unbelievable stuff. I mean, you'll have to have him here. of Like, lean years, like, you can't believe. So it was written from a very, very real place. But the inspiration was one of the only times in my career that I had a title and just a concept of, like, Did you what know that it meant. was great? I knew it was great. And I never... The incomplete was the same. Going back to incomplete, that song took a couple years. Um, it didn't take a couple years, but 
the A&R person at the time passed on it. And I knew, I knew it so strongly about that song. And um, when they got a new A&R person, I was like, resend it, resend it. And with Skyscraper, first Curly did it, and then she got dropped. And I knew, I, was, I just said, I know there's something so special about this song. And then Jordan Sparks cut the song. Wow. And it, it just wasn't a great fit at that time because I think she's incredible. I've had a lot of cuts with Jordan. Um, didn't make it and was like sitting around and there were some people that wanted to cut it that we said no to. And then I didn't even know that Ben Groff had played it for John Lind. And at the time I was like Demi Lovato because at the time she was like the pop Disney pop princess. I didn't know she was going through rehabbing these incredible things. So this was like two years later. And then when I saw the video and heard her version of the song, I just like cried my eyes out. It was like that song had been written for her and for yeah. that moment. And I think that's an important part about why the song is what it is. It's because it spoke to what she had been through and what I'd been through, what we'd all been through. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. It seemed to open up. It, it, it seemed like that was the beginning of um, cons- consistency for you, at, where you're starting to get songs that, annually that just kind of become part of that great American songbook. I mean, it's really short after that, maybe even that same year that Hot Shell Ray comes out, right? The next year, I think, with Tonight Tonight, which is an unknown band on a label at the time that was kind of struggling. And... And took a year. And that song ends up becoming... uh, I remember finding out when it had just passed sitting on the dock of the bay. Wow. For I was with, I think, E-Man and Evan, your co-writers on Evan Bogart, who we had on this. But I'm pretty sure it passed sitting on the dock of the bay for performances, total performances. Wow. Or something crazy. I didn't cra- even know that. It that's was crazy if that's it true. Was, it was some crazy thing like that, you know? And it's... 
tell me about the process of a song from nothing to blowing up so big that you know it it almost inevitably makes the band a, a one hit wonder because it's impossible to follow that up. Um, so I mean that song is just like, did you know at that time that that song is is this is we're on we have a an A list song. We can choose who we have cut it. I mean, what's the process of writing that song and how it gets to where it gets? Well, there is that began my, that's when Jess moved back and that began sort of a two year, like uh, pretty exclusive with Eman and Evan. And there was where we were just right, that, those lyrics are very much Evan and I. I mean, Hot Show Ray came in later and then they changed some stuff and made it their own. But at the time, the three of us, like those silly kind of lyrics, it was that it was It Girl for Jason Derulo and it was classic, which also broke MKTO. So we were doing these really clever, funny, and then of course, she does that. Um, but it was a period of time I didn't know. Like I did not know that tonight, tonight, like when it started and we were like laughing, we're like, it got one spin, you know, and then you little by little da, by da, da. you know the whole song just from that. Yeah. But we just out. didn't see we were like, it's an unknown band, but we it took a year. I mean, I think it went number one like on hot I see. It took a year. Classic also, I think, took like a year. So we just had this magic period where just everything we were writing was like singles and Evan and I had this lyrical style that was still, I think, very unique. Like those songs are just, were yeah. a unique uh, group of songs that were, were you very, pa- very different. Were you patient during that year? Do you follow charts? Are you following this for a year? I was, I think I got so burnt out on following charts because you get so obsessed and you can't control it. And then I started to realize that it go, comes in really high and then the research hasn't happened and then it drops down. And then you, you know, I used to just have anxiety attacks for weeks watching the charts. And I think I finally came to a point where it's like, this is not healthy. I mean, I still would. And it's not as easy as it is now where you, you know, you can look at media base and really, really see or exactly all the different things. Um, but it was an incredible, that was an incredible run. And like, then it got me out of the big ballads. Like, and I still love running big ballads, by the way, but think sure. about Incomplete, which left to me Skyscraper. Now you're into It Girl and Classic and Tonight Tonight and these like quirky pop, so- funny pop songs. Right. Uh, well, I mean, speaking of pop stuff, you you then end up having, you know, one, one di- you get some One Direction cuts right in the beginning before they really blow up, you know, one of the things that I like about your discography is that you're always in first. Like you always seem to be with these people. Not before. always. I feel but like Demi, other you people. You got to Demi before people got to Demi. You got to Selena before people got to Selena, and you got to One Direction. You know, I mean, is that just coincidence with all those? I think for me, I've been lucky with the producers. I think um, I've met amazing producers who have brought me into opportunities. Steve Robson, we have a bite up, but I did several of the One Direction songs. They were with Toby and with Steve Robson. So, and See, I... Were you flying to... Lo- love Steve. Were you flying to London? Well, what happened was first, it was the first ones were with Toby. There were two with Toby where they were just like these kids that came to Toby's and they were like this band. I don't even know if they were signed. Nobody knew what was going to happen. What the Taken that was on the first record, I think it was like the demo that they put in the record. Toby was just like, oh, there's this boy band you want to come and write. Like, nobody had any idea. So you idea. didn't, when One Direction, were, were you in the room with them? Yeah, it was all of them. And I still think about the million dollars I could have made because they were all shirtless out by the pool at Toby's. <laughs> I was like, why didn't I snap that picture? TMZ. 
Oh yeah. my <laughs> god! And they were adorable, and they were great, and they would you know come in and say we like this, we don't like that. They had ideas, but then I'm trying to think when I first met Steve because I've written a lot of songs with Steve, and um, you had you had like you had a lot of songs with One Direction. I had I think four because then Steve and I had two, Crazy. Um, and he also we also had Five Seconds of Summer when I that was the first like co-write I think that they had they were in London like with shivering because they like didn't bring jackets and it was winter and Steve and I wrote the first group of songs with them and that was Steve again so like I think I was really fortunate to have producers that would bring me into these amazing situations and opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it's just an amazing thing to watch. See, when you're with an artist and no one knows who they are, and, and then to then see them become a household name oh, is, unbelievable. A sh- is shocking to watch and that. And great people, too, yeah. which is nice and talented. Um, You then end up, for another sort of phase in your career, if you go for the next one, you then end up kind of with some EDM stuff because you have really Selena Gomez slowdown, is kind of more EDM in a way. Well, that, and then you end up with the get get a dangerous, which is a whole other thing. But yeah. let's start with the you know slowdown. It becomes a kind of Selena's first real radio hit, isn't it? Like not not radio, not Disney radio, but like that was like a real maybe the first real pop radio. Yeah, hit. it might have been. It might have been. No, I think I think it was. Um, I forget what it was called, but it was right around that time. It was one of the first. Maybe it was the first. Well, that brings us into the Julia Michaels period where there was like a couple of years. This was sort of after the Eman Evan. And of course, I still work with Eman and Evan, but it just sort of shifted into a new thing. And um, I have a friend named Jolene Bell, who's a wonderful writer, and and she had developed and worked with Julia for years. And um, I heard... Julia's voice and I was just like this girl's incredible I heard her on a demo and I was like can I use her on a demo and then I was like do you mind if I co-write her I mean I really have to give a shout out to Jolene because she spent you know I think four or five years really developing her and she had her some of her first opportunities with Jolene but then I heard her and just said I just had a feeling I need to write with this girl and so the first song we wrote I think the second song we wrote Demi Cut it's called uh, Firestarter. And then the second one was Slow Down. And um, that's how that EDM stuff happened because of Julia's voice. So we were getting a lot of opportunities where she was singing. Like we had some semi-big EDM hits just because our thing was just get into the room and just like write, you know, to a track or whatever. And then they would hear her voice. It was a song called Surrender and Invincible and... Um, it was just this whole period of, of Julia. The Your method as a writer had to evolve so much to go from the Backstreet Boys style of sort of discipline and syllables and all that stuff. I've never, ever been a disciplined syllables person, ever. So how did you get to... That would make sense. I mean, for Julia, that was so important for her to be herself. Were you encouraging I've, her I've to do always, that? Then? I've always closed my eyes and just seen what came out. I, I, I'm the most unprepared writer. That's why Skyscraper was so unique. But it was only the word. The song came from the chords and the feeling and the emotion. I've always been coming from emotion. 
I've never been about syllables or technical or the course should come here or it has to be like that. It's always been just like, what am I feeling? Very visceral. If when I start thinking to me, do you find that that's unique or is that? I don't know if it's unique. It's the only way that I can write. It's the only way that I like to write. And I think the songs and the style of songs a lot have come from the producers and the artists and the time maybe. Like, so, I mean, I think when we started, we were awesome. We were with EDM producers and with Julia, I think what I really taught her, and she said this a lot in articles, was she would come in with an idea on a paper and I was like, Let's talk about like what's happening in our lives. And there was always like boy trouble with both of us. Or, and, and I would be like, let's just both take turns on the mics and just close our eyes and sing stuff. And then we would just like comp it and be like, okay, let's use, I would make a joke and say, we'll comp it and then we'll use your melodies. <laughs> like a lot of times you always used your right. melodies. And I would do a lot of the lyrics. But now, you know, she's developed her own style, which is very much hers. But I think I helped her and guided her. And that's just what we did. The stuff that we did together was just what we did together. It wasn't like a thinking thing. Sure. You have in your, I'm just going to the next sort of writing phase. Cause what's, what's cool about your career is that you've, you've managed to have a lot of songs have been cut by pitching. You're not necessarily in the room all the time. With Almost the never. Almost never. That's super unique for I know. someone to have as long of a discography as yours and to have been with so many different producers and so many different co-writers is pretty unique compared to it's it's becoming apparent just from this conversation because first you look at somebody's discography, but you don't necessarily recognize all the ancillary people who make these songs happen. So it's it's really fascinating. I mean, you you at some point go from Julia to then the next group of people, which is this Ian. N- this new this new community of Ian Kirkpatrick, um, and which I know is all extended family, but Ian and the Monsters and Strangers and Jason Evigan and yep. Sam Martin. That was the new. Well, it sort of happened. Well, and I want to go back to say the only artist I ever wrote a hit in the in the room with was was um, Nick Lachey, who was part of What's Left of Me. Every other thing was pitched, and then the artist, even with all the Derulo stuff, would come back in later and make it their own. Right. But always. It's been, I think, very unusual sure. that way. Um, Does Dangerous come before Want to Want Me? Yes. Okay, so let's go with that first. Okay. So is that the first song you wrote with, with Sam and with... No. Ian? What happened was, Julia and I had gone to this writer's camp uh-huh. in uh, Santa Barbara, and we had such a great time. And so we were working then with Jason and Mitch, and we said, let's do Mitch our Allen. own writer's camp, Mitch Allen. Yeah. And um, we decided to also invite Sam Martin, who I think I'd written one song with that nothing happened with it at APG, and Ian Kirkpatrick, who I think I'd written one song with that Julia demoed. And um, we rented a house in Lake Arrowhead and the six of us went there, bought our own food, no assistance, no nothing. And um, we did, I think, about five of these camps. And Want to Want Me was written at one of these camps. And just from, that's how I met those guys and started writing a bunch with those guys. And then I think just from, Dangerous was very lucky for me because Ian and Jason were in the studio. I'll never forget this. And they were like called me because we had just done a camp. So I was very fresh in their mind. And I mean, 
Yes, I'm a top liner, but I think I'm probably most sought after for lyrics. Huh. Um, and they called me, it was like eight o'clock at night. And I was like, you guys, why are you calling me? You know, I hate to work at night. And they're like, we're just stuck on this lyric. Can you just come over to the studio? And I'm like, fine. They're like, so I just went over there and they had like, just knocked out the lyric. Boom. It was like a, and that's ver- a that was a worldwide number one. Just didn't worldwide really number do one. Much in the U.S., but it was I know huge. it was huge. It was huge. It was just uh, the. I always say that was one of the luckiest days in my life. That song made up for other songs that, of course, you know, you feel like there are some songs you write a lot of, and the yeah. people don't contribute as much or whatever. But this one, I just got lucky that they had, you know, they had the melody and they needed lyrics, and we knocked it out and didn't think anything of it. But I think want to want me was around the same time because I think there a, a lot of people wanted to cut that song. Yeah. We had a big battle because Chris Brown really wanted that song. They were going to send a helicopter to bring us to where he was for him to make the changes on it. And then we decided, we always wanted Jason to, to have it and then he did his tweaks on it. But, but that really helped to f- redefine him. I yeah. mean, I mean, I've had so many Jason people. like, what's with Jason Derulo? Well, that, and that was, I mean, <laughs> it's so that's funny. My next thing you have, you end up with three, four, uh, four, five straight, yeah, five th- straight Jason Derulo singles. I know, and all just as like a, coincidental. As like a, a, a white Jewish girl. I don't understand it. Whenever I see him, we just like hug and we're like, I love you. Like it's just this weird thing. Um, I mean, it girl was just that was a whole other style, but yeah, I mean, want to want me. It was just one of those songs. And I mean, I have to say that broke Ian and Ian's production is insane. Yeah. And Sam's insane. That was just a great mix of what we all did. And that was a big lesson for me because this is a funny thing about Want to Want Me. When we were in Lake Arrowhead, the song was called Girl from New York City. Oh, I got a girl in New York City, which I thought was just so cool and clever. And... um. Ian and Sam were like, we need to get back and rewrite that. And Mitch was part of the song too, but they were like, we need to get back and rewrite that. And I'm like, I love it. They're like, it's terrible. So when I came up with the lyric Want to Want Me, I thought that was just so terrible. Coming from where I'd come from, well, coming from where I'd started and Skyscraper and Audrey McDonald, and I was just like, it's so, and Sam was like, no, it's great. So it was, it was a lesson in, you know, in simplicity of that lyric. And the right melody, I just, it was, that song was a big lesson for me. And being conversational in pop yes. is a whole other thing than being conversational in in theater. Because, you know, or, you know, you go to a, a theater, you have to walk away singing the song. And you, and the, every lyric has to tell part of the story or it's, right. a, or it's just down. If you go and you, do you sing Want to Want Me in the middle of a musical, it's, it's going to sound, it, it would just sound weird. But it, you go seeing Girl in, you know, I'm in love with a girl in New York City could totally be just oh, yeah. an incredible, you see you see that song. Well, and Want to Want Me is an emotion and it's a feeling. It was, I learned a huge lesson from that song. And I have to really credit Sam and Ian because they really drilled it in my head and I like finally got it. Like I got, even though I've never, like I said, been a thinking writer it sort of changed something in me of saying, okay, like the conversational and certain Mike Karen rules that we you yeah. talked about in the Mike yeah. Karen interview. It was just, it was a good lesson of, of the difficulty of simplicity. Sure. And setting up the picture and the furniture in the verses. I mean, 
we spent a long time in that song. I mean, usually songs fly out of me very quickly. How do you feel about when Cheyenne comes out uh, following just a giant smash like Want to Want Me? Cheyenne, Try Me, and If It Ain't Love are all, well, If It Ain't Love is Mid-charters the next Mid-charters at best. Yeah. Like, how does that, how do you, how does that affect you as a writer? It, or do you not, or is it sort of like none of this matters because Want to Want Me is like I've always a fly by the album. scene of my pants. I mean, none of those songs were even written like, you know, I was really lucky that I was Monsters and Strangers. It was the same thing. If this ain't, if it ain't love, that um, Jason called me like, we're stuck on a lyric. Can you come to the studio? Um, Cheyenne was an accident of us just like, like it being around Christmas time and there were like eight of us, seven of us there and we're like, let's just all write the song together. Um, just for fun, let's just write a song and see sure. what happens. But no, I think I'm just not a. Th- I don't think about stuff like that. So I I wasn't watching things like, oh my god, this has to be a hit. Like I think, right. or maybe I'm fortunate enough to that I'm at the point now where I'm. I think want to want me put me in a new position that I'm extremely grateful for, where I don't quite have to worry as much. I mean, I want to still be relevant. Um, I mean, I have a song coming out on Andrew Day that I'm extremely proud of, which I feel is going, it's a song called Amen that I can't wait for everybody to hear. You've heard that song. So I think this may be another new era and I've started to go back to Nashville. Like I started to, you know, and going to London more and something, fingers crossed on, well, we'll see, other credible artists that I've been, I've been coming kind of back into that now. Yeah. I've sort of not gone full circle, but just kind of wanting to write more sophisticated lyrics again. But I'm open for anything. Like, I'm always up for anything, and I think that's part of my longevity. It's like, I love writing fun pop songs. I, I can't wait for rock to come back. I love going to Nashville. Um, I still love, you know, soul, R&B. You don't really call it R&B, rhythmic. Um, I don't do, like, really urban songs. That's the only thing that I don't do. But it, it, it explains, should explain to people how valuable somebody who writes lyrics is. And they're somebody who's willing to also evolve with time because lyrics, you know, you're not writing songs right now talking about shorty, shorty this, shorty that. Do you know what I mean? You, you have to you listen have to, to actually, the, like, like you were talking about conversational. There was a time where stuff was more poetic. Right. Um, and now songs are very conversational. I think you have to follow your own heart and be willing to start the new trend. But you also want to listen to what's out there and and hopefully be inspired and influenced by it. Well, we've been around, and we've worked with a lot of producers and a lot of producers in you know in your discography who had moments because that sound was so relevant at that time, and it just takes so much effort to move the needle sonically and a lot of people just don't you get you know you get comfortable and you don't you don't have the same drive you had when you know when you're living in in a place for $300 a month and you know make eating spaghetti and ragu it's hard to convince somebody who lives in a nice house in the hills to like keep struggling to find that that drum sound yeah, well, I mean, I agree. I think sometimes top liners have a better shot at longevity because we can just always be with the new producers or the new artists and what we do is kind of what we do. It's 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 the the sonics and the landscape that make it sound current. Yeah. I think more than anything. But I've never lost my 
my drive to create. I've lost a little bit of the desperation because uh, I think, right. you know, being Jewish, we always have to be a little bit desperate. Do they like <laughs> me? Are they going to call me? Do they still like me? Um, but I still have this huge... Like yesterday, I was so excited about the song I wrote yesterday because it was something that was inspired by real life events. And I was like bursting to write this song. Love it. Yeah. And and I, I just still feel like there's so much in me that wants to be expressed. And that's what it's always been. I know in the last year you had some really interesting things happen also where you had... You know, a Eurovision, a Eurovision song. Well, that was just like, that was crazy. It's a song that I Which, wrote at the French Castle like five years ago. That was just a matter of me, of a publisher, one of my publishers, Cobalt Smanche in um, Berlin, saying, send me everything and song. Just everything I could think of. I just sent, 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 said, and they just happened to pick this song. That that's I did. a different thing that people don't know what that is in the U.S. Can you explain what Eurovision is? Well, it's a massive uh it's. I guess it's. It is a song contest. Yeah, but it's, it's also like about what? an art. It's both both about an artist and a song. I mean, it's 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 beyond massive. It's almost like, like what I, Formula One is outside of the U.S. or or soccer is outside of the U.S. It's so big that it's hard to explain what it is. Yeah. That when the winner of Eurovision happens, it's. It's on the cover of every newspaper throughout the oh. world except for the U.S. It's like American Idol times. A thousand. It's it's hard. Yeah, it's massive. Does so, that uh, make? Were there opportunities because of that that have arisen, or is that you know, more just? Well, that just, was just a cool thing to witness. You know what it is is that because of that, and because Dangerous was so big in Germany, like I, I'm going to be going to Berlin to doing some to, to do some writing. So it just gives me a bit of a presence in Berlin. I have a presence in London. I have you know a couple things happening in Nashville. So those things are important to just keep you relevant in different territories because yeah. I really, really enjoy traveling and writing trips. I find yeah. it very inspiring and I've had, yeah, it's just fun and yeah. great things. Like my well, two that's why loves. you do this anyway though. Yes. To experience life in a, in a unique yes. way. Yes, I love travel, going into a room and then spending the day with people that I like and eating lunch and, and creating. Like I feel so grateful. I yeah. mean, I'm not, I really, really do all the time that I get to do it still and that people still are calling. I mean, are there hotter, shinier new pennies? Hell yeah. But, you know, if you want like tried and true, it's like, call Indy. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's awesome. That should be your, your theme song. It's like one eight 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 one eight 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 one eight eight eight. call Indy. Um, I'm going to list five people and just tell me what comes, the first thing that comes to your head. Uh, uh, okay. Jason Derulo. Money in the bank. Thank you, Jason. Love that. <laughs> An incredible voice yeah. and falsetto. Let's go, let's go back and do Audrey McDonald. Just uh, tears from her talent. And yeah. Her music director. She direct- moves me. I've seen her on stage. She moves me. Her music director is my cousin. It's the only other musician in my entire family is a guy named Ted Sperling. I know Ted Sperling because he was part of the Rodgers and Hammerstein family when I had my deal there. He is my... Oh my, my God, yeah. we're, we're related anyway. We're, we're sure. related. That's pretty cool because I've always said that. I've said, you know, the only other person in my family has won multiple Tony Awards. The only other musician in my family. And, I, you know, we know each other peripherally, but not really. And it's just sort of one of those things of, of when you view something as attainable, you reach for it. So if you think that you can try to win Tonys, then you 
You go, okay, well, exactly. Then, yeah, then That's why I was writing that. those songs back then because those were the people I knew. And I've always been one to say the, the opportunities that I have, yeah. whether it's dance, country, or whatever. Let's go with E-Man and Evan Bogart. Lunch, number one. Lunch, laughing and torturing me by lunch. putting just... <laughs> Just like the like the brothers that tease you more than ever, and talent, and and just craziness. Yeah, like like zaniness. Yeah. Um, I'll go with this. I gotta go the whole crew. I gotta go Ian Monsters and Strangers, Jason Evigan and Sam Martin. You know, challenging in a good way because. Sam and Ian, especially because I wrote a lot of songs with them, they pushed me to change the way that I wrote, and I'm stubborn. Um, I mean, so did Eman and Evan in a different way, actually. But it just changed. They changed me in a good way, and they challenged me, and sometimes I wanted to kill them. And I love them so much for that. I'll it was tell a different. Ian. Yeah. That when I see him yeah. in 45 minutes. Yeah. I'm going to be like, you know what Lindy said? <laughs> <laughs> and love and so much they give me so much love. I mean I mean that genuinely, all these people. They're fantastic. This yeah, is that like gener- real love. The, the generation thing that we talk about a lot where this is a different generation in the music business. You know, there is a lot more emotion in this. It feels like everyone's much more familial. Oh. And I mean, I was in bed, my wife's asleep, and I'm on a text chain with Ian and Jay Cash last night. At till like twelve thirty, making jokes, which I can't say. But oh, like, you know, it, it's a fact that we all. It's a different generation. There is genuine love oh. throughout the the whole community. All of them, they, and things they're that, a big part of it. Yeah, and things that aren't about music, like Jason Evigan and I. Like we just, you know, these really deep. We have these deep spiritual conversations, and just, you know, and Ian and I would just be like, "I love you. I miss you." I mean, there's real love. Sam also like. There's real love and friendship yeah. and support and support for success that we have with other people that I think is really, really nice. Totally. You know? Our last one, I got to say, Julia Michaels. Okay, I'm, it's, it's bittersweet. Mostly, I'm so proud of her. I think that she's an astonishing talent. I really had a huge part in her breaking through her first opportunities bringing her to her manager, getting her her first cuts. Um, but mostly it's pride that I really just showed her that she could do what she already knew what to do. Because her style is her own style. Like nobody else does that. And I think what I did was just give her the confidence to just do what she does that nobody else does. So, and I miss, I miss her. Um, you know, she's partnered up with Justin and she's, you know, we've all moved on to our other things. I mean, when I see her, it's a love fest. But so a little bittersweet, but mostly just incredible pride. And I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. You know, the the industry is filled with those people who do come in and are a shiny new penny who you know, you leave them on a sidewalk after a while, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just sort of what it is. And you have all these people who come in with ulterior motives, who want to be famous, who want to do, do all these different things that maybe they're trendy, all these things that get them in the door, but don't keep them in the room. 
and for you to continue to you're in so many rooms all any one of these co-writers would welcome you back into their room all you have to do is be like hey, what are you doing with, i write with a and lot of them still of yeah i write with toby i write with eman and evan ian sam but Jason. that says a lot because they can easily say no they could easily go and move on. They right. could find the, the another another penny to go right with, but they don't. They still are it's like no. We you know when if Jason Derulo is hitting you up and Audrey McDonald can hit you up, you know if if you can go and have that career, uh, I'm pretty sure as a writer there you can't have a more successful kind of discography and experience traveling the world doing music and Eurovision that was written in a castle in France. It just sounds fake. It sounds like you're making this up as you go, but you're not. You're just nice and you're fun to spend time with, and so people want to write with you. And you're you're. It's fortunate that you're also good. So, congratulations on everything, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.